Our scripture reading this morning is select verses from Proverbs chapter 8 and chapter 16. Proverbs chapter 8, verses 15 through 16. By me, kings reign, and rulers decree what is just. By me, princes rule, and nobles, all who govern justly. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 13. Righteous lips are the delight of a king, and he loves him who speaks what is right. Proverbs chapter 16, verses 4 and 9. The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. And this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thank you. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for today. We thank you for your word. We thank you for a body that we get to call our family. Father, we thank you for a place to gather. Father, to sing Psalm 100, to make a joyful noise. Father, while the nations rage against you, Father, we stand here under your kingship. Father, I pray as we explore that theme today, that you would encourage us in what it means to be the citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Father, this is not new for us. It's something we talk about all the time. Father, this is our true citizenship, our true reality. I pray that you will open our hearts to that today. Is in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope you have been enjoying our, our time in Proverbs. Um, it's, uh, it's fun in one sense to be able to talk about these topics. Um, it's not our favorite thing to do is to jump topically. Um, there are so many different directions you can go and things to put together in tackling these. And probably most tragically, so many things left unsaid on each of these topics. Uh, we kind of have to narrow into some specifics, but I pray that it has been useful for you and helpful as you look at a broad survey of the Proverbs. Uh, it is not uncommon in most people's Bible reading to try to take one chapter of Proverbs every day for the month, and you go through them monthly that way. Um, as you do that, I hope that you have seen uh, these themes, that you've seen these things popping up across the book of Proverbs one that we're going to talk about today um, is literally every single proverb in the book of Proverbs that I think is often overlooked and, and missed when we put together our themings of Proverbs. And um, leaning into two other pastors and helping kind of uh, understand how this, this sits as kind of an umbrella over all of the Proverbs uh, today and want to take us through that as we explore this particular theme, the idea of kings and kingdoms. Kings and kingdoms. As we know from the scriptures as a whole, they all speak to the life of the believer. We believe that the word is sufficient for all things that are necessary for a life of godliness, to please God in all that we do. And in the same way, the Proverbs, all of the Proverbs that we are reading are speaking to the life of the believer, but also all creation, as it sits in subjection under God, the king of the universe. One commentator argued this, he says that wisdom theology in the book of Proverbs is thoroughly theological. That is, it refers every aspect of life to the rule of God. It's very easy in Proverbs to just take it as those short, pithy sayings that are generally true for your life 
things that you want to be helpful, it's just wisdom in general, and to divorce it of the fact that everything that we're talking about inside of wisdom comes from wisdom itself. Back to our brief study in Colossians before Proverbs, we know that wisdom is an attribute of God. He is wisdom. And so as we take these small pithy sayings, go sluggard, observe the ant, that kind of thing, that is a theological statement. And it's easy for us to divorce it of that. The thing is, is when we usually think of theological concepts, it has to be some high and lofty principle. And that's just not the case. Because theology is necessarily lived out because it touches and orders everything. Our understanding of the God and creator of this universe, if God is the creator of everyone and everything, then that means that he has touched and is touching everything that there is in our life. And so our understanding of that person, of God the Father, necessarily touches and orders Everything. Now, whether or not you recognize and see that order doesn't change its reality and bearing. You may not have been to our systematic theology classes, and so you don't know the order of everything. Not that we're really ordering everything, but the order. You may not see it, you may not know it, but that doesn't change whether or not it's true. Same commentator says this, the fact that the teaching is inductive and established case by case, the fact that it's exploratory and it's case by case, piece by piece, topic by topic. That doesn't make the teaching any less formidable theologically because wisdom asserts that the God who decrees and maintains a particular ordering of reality towards life is sovereign, sovereign beyond challenge and his will, purpose, and order cannot be defied or circumvented with impunity. In other words, if there's really a God, he's the boss, and he sets things the way that he sets them, and we cannot change will go against those things with impunity. It is his will, his purpose, and his order. And so we find very quickly our topic for today. We have a king. The first thing I want you to see today is kingdom and kingship. Kingdom and kingship. You see, the Bible, including the Old Testament specifically too, is about God revealing and establishing his active kingly rule. That's what we're tracing. If we go back to our, our biblical theology, we look at the story of the scriptures. He is actively, progressively revealing, we would call it, revealing and establishing his active kingly role. This is the kingship or the kingdom of God. It's teaching and enabling God's people to live under his kingly rule. It outlines God's people living in God's place, under God's rule, and I always say subsequent blessing, right? When we live according to God's law, we get blessing. When we live against it, we get curse. And so we see that it concerns God's active involvement in history, in creation, in everyday life, in the world, in God's people, in the future. His hands are on everything. And it shows us the implications of what that kingly rule means for us, for God's people, for others. How should we respond to him as king? How are we to live? What are we to look forward to? What are we to look back to? You see, the Bible is not just about God in a general sense, but about his ordering, his ruling, his controlling his creation and his people, regulating life in his creation and calling for response from those people. That's what it means to be king. That's what it means to be sovereign. If he is indeed king, 
then what we see is how he orders things. How he's ruling and what his rules are. How he controls his creation. He is in control of creation. How he changes his people, what he does with them, regulating life inside of that creation, and what response he demands from us. These are the three things that we would call it in systematic theology. His preservation. God upholds and sustains all things from the bottom. He holds it all up. In the middle of the globe, we see his concurrence. God works in and through all things. And over top, on the top of the globe, we see his governance. God rules and directs all things. He upholds, he's active, he rules. That's what a sovereign king does. That's what we see in his kingship. The entire Bible is outlining those three things. How does God hold and sustain all things? How does he at work amongst his creation and his people? And how is he ruling and directing things in his governance? It outlines his kingly rule in the past. We can see it and from creation. We can see it with Noah. We can see it with Abraham. We can see it with Israel. We can see it with the church. We can see it in the future. We see all of this specifically exercised through special people and through his word. Right? Those people that he calls according to his namesake, his people. It's God's people and God's place under his rule. That's what kingdom is. Whether it be from the exile or the promised land or the future heavenly city of God, we see the authority of God's law. And Proverbs, like the other wisdom books, has a wider perspective, though, on humanity. You see, in the majority of the Old Testament, we're primarily tracking God's people, right? In God's place, under God's rule. But Proverbs and the other wisdom books give a wider perspective on all of humanity. What does it look like for the world, the whole earth? And at times, even speaking of the cosmos, the entire universe. And specifically, in how they live in response to God's ordering of them. See, whether or not you actually understand and would submit to the authority and rulership of God does not change whether or not he has authority and rulership. And the other books of the wisdom show us how people respond to God's ordering of his creation because it's his to order. God the creator is pictured as the one who sustains and orders his creation. And is in this everyday life context that we have to live wisely. That's what we've been outlining in Proverbs is down to the nitty-gritty what does everyday life look like, and particularly today under a king. Not just what is the rule of God, that's the law, right? We really want to talk about that. We're probably going to go to Romans, probably going to go to Hebrews, going to spend some time in Exodus and Leviticus, right? Definitely in Deuteronomy, outlining the law of God, but the rule of God, his active rulership. What does it mean for him to rule as a king? And how do we really practically live under it? And so you see, this makes the book of Proverbs a rich source of teaching about how to live in a godly and wise way in our daily lives. Not to just simply say, as Paul would, live as a sojourner, as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven on earth. That's a broad category, right? Well, according to what customs, according to what culture Certainly the people of God have their own customs and culture. We see that through the scriptures. But how much of it is outlined in the nitty-gritty practical pieces of Proverbs? Specifically, you should live this way. 
When you encounter this situation, you should do this. It's piecemeal culture and custom for the people in the kingdom of God. How should they live under his rule? So God is clearly the one in charge, right? And he's actively at work in his work. Go to Proverbs 16 for this. Verse 1, the plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. Verse 4, the Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Verse 9, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. He's the one in charge, and he is actively at work in his work. So the thing is, we know he rules. We know he has a law. But when we look at the Proverbs, we see a contrast because the law is dominated by commands, right? By prohibitions. You shall not do this. You shall do this. And the prophets, when you get to them, right, after the books of history, they just thunder at the people saying what? Thus saith the Lord. Right? They're, they're delivering the commands, the law of God for the people. But there is in the wisdom books like Proverbs a concern with those everyday details, which are too small to be trapped in the mesh of the law, or attacked by the broadsides being fired by the prophets. Thus saith the Lord, look at the ant. Right? <laughs> like it's, it's not the same tone. It is a different exercise. And so the Proverbs deal with how to approach God, and, and especially other people. But in a quite distinctive way. It's a less confined to just religious actions. You see, in the books of the law, the Torah, you generally see the life activity of the people of God in and around the tabernacle, the temple of God, where his dwelling is. But here for us, it's what happens outside of the tabernacle. How do I honor God away from the bull, away from the sacrifice, away from the courts of praise? How do I live with other people in my tent? How do I live with other people in my city? How do I live with other people in my home? What does that look like? And so you see how Christianity should have always been much more than just simple religion. It has always been about all of life, orientated to the whole of life, what we spend most of our time doing. You have pastors for decades, for centuries, saying, worship God all the time. Or you have more contemporarily, right, all of life is worship, right? What do I do with that? Do I just say that at home? All of life is worship. We've been trying to put some of those pithy sayings into practice. We've been going through James uh, here and there at home, and in chapter 3, we have the tongue is a fire and sets people on fire. So now when a child comes saying, Mom, they said this, they said this. We tell them, tell your sister they're setting you on fire. Just tell them that their, their tongue, their words are setting you on fire. I tried that. It hasn't, it hasn't gone over well. I'm, I'm still pushing for that one. Um, I feel like that gives the picture better, much quicker, right? You're not just being mean, not just being selfish. You're setting me on fire. It is destructive. That's a daily activity. That's not a all of life is worship answer. I don't know what to do with that pithy saying, but I do when I know that it sets people on fire. I do when I know that it tells me that if I am a sluggard, I turn on my bed like a hinge. I can experience that. That's not something that I see here. That's something that's at home. 
And so it's not just what do we do with our regular time in our action sense, but we get to then the heart of the matter too. It's concerned with our character. And if you want to see how much the Proverbs really cares about character, just look at all of chapter 2. All of chapter 2 of Proverbs driving to the heart of the man. Right? It's not just our external actions, but what motivates it. What is that stream of life that is producing this fruit in our lives? Because who we are counts just as much for Proverbs as what we do. Proverbs takes our faith out of the church building and into the world. It argues that God is interested in us living under his active kingly rule in that context as well. Not just at home, not just here on Sunday, but in the workplace, in the grocery store on the baseball field, everywhere. There are rich resources here for us to have a theology of everyday life. To see that God's kingly rule truly touches all of life. And so Proverbs, as part of wisdom literature, adds a distinct richness to a biblical understanding of God at work in his world. We have the decrees of God in the law. We have that. We know that he is. But how much flavor do we see in Proverbs as he outlines all of these different ways of what it looks like to live rightly as a righteous and upright person? So, when we come to Proverbs, we have to read it on its own terms. It's doing that first. That's its goal. Too often we try to take Proverbs and just try to shove it into the general uh, pattern of Scripture, which is a good thing to read it in light of the scriptures, but it's an entirely different genre. It has an entirely different purpose. It has an entirely different uh, goal in mind. And it shows us, as we look at how Proverbs outlines all of life for the Christian, that God's purposes are broader than simply saving sinners. Now that statement will throw a lot of good Christians for a loop, and I understand, because we certainly affirm... Uh, 1 Timothy 1.15 The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Right? 100%. Is that all he's doing? No. Like, it's, it's that simple. It's not to say that he's not saving sinners. That is the primary goal. That's what he's after, right? We would affirm this too with John 3.17, the verse after the one everyone knows. We'd affirm it there too. But that's not all he's doing. Like, if you ask that simple question, is that all he's doing? Well, it makes it so obvious. No. <laughs> There's so much more happening. It's just broader, right? He's not just simply doing this. He's complicatedly doing a lot. It's much broader. But the danger for the Christian is that if we can reduce it, if we can reduce all of God's commands, all of his activity, simply down to that one premise of it just being him saving me, well then what does that do? It alleviates all the demands on my way of life. It's all about the sacrifice and the payment for sin and not about how a good Christian lives his life in a broader picture. And so while we would certainly affirm gospel centrality, he came into the world to save sinners in that sense, yes. The danger is that the gospel is much broader. He speaks to all of life. The Proverbs speak to all of life. The wisdom literature speaks to all of life. So the danger is that we narrow down to just the goal. 
missing the entire play at work around it. So, while this is definitely saving sinners, the heart of the Bible, God has seen fit to include a book like Proverbs, which describes him as actively at work in shaping individuals and the community around us in accordance with his values, his virtues, his character. And he gives much instruction for us in daily living. And so, since all of life must come under Christ's lordship, it is and will. Colossians 1, 15-20 tells us that he's the Lord of both creation and redemption. Everything is coming under his lordship. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that what? Jesus is Lord. Everything is coming under his lordship. Then the teaching of Proverbs must be brought into the New Testament and reread in the light of Christ. In fact, that's just what Jesus does that we see in Luke chapter 24, verse 27 and 44. He's interpreting all of the law, the prophets, and the history in light of himself, showing how he brings to fulfillment all these things. And Jesus even builds on the teaching of Proverbs, particularly in the Sermon on the Mount, in arguing that our new life in Christ must result in a radically transformed way of daily living. You cannot simply be a sinner saved, and that's the end of the story. His sinner saving transforms the entire life. We must bring the whole thing into the New Testament. And some later New Testament books are going to specifically help us develop that in terms of life in the church, but also our everyday lives in the world. James, all about this. Faith without what? Works is dead. The one who says that he's a believer but has no works to back it up is a liar to himself and to those around him. Ephesians draws this out beautifully for us. What does it look like to live as a kingdom citizen? Specifically when you look through chapters 5 and the beginning of 6. All of these different roles, all of these different stations in life. How do I live a life pleasing to God because of what he's done? Chapters 1 through 3. What does that look like? So as we read the Proverbs, we don't necessarily need any one specific verse, like we even began with today, to see that Jesus is king, that he is in control of everything. It all points to this reality. This is what it looks like to live faithfully under the rule of the king. When you read Proverbs, it all speaks to this theme, every bit of it. So, that is kingdom and kingship. He is king. But we speak of him as what? King of kings. Let's talk about the other kings. The other kings. The second major piece for today. We break this up into two pieces. Lean particularly heavily on this section and and to another outline to develop this. But we talk about Jesus as king of kings and often only talk of his kingship even as we've done so far today, right? But what about the other kings, the ones that he's king over, the king of kings? Let's talk about these guys. Throughout Proverbs, every reader of Proverbs is exhorted to seek out the wisdom that's pertinent, that's helpful, that's necessary for his station in life, for his position, and the duties that come with that, whether that's father, whether that's mother, whether that's uh, a ruler, whether that's a, a king, 
whether that's a slave, whether that's a sluggard, whatever you might be, you identify where you are and you're uh, exhorted to listen to that, to seek out wisdom for those things. Chapters 1 and 2, hear these words and bring them into your life. Now, the same holds true for these kings, right? Kings, leaders, rulers are specifically addressed throughout the Proverbs. And we find that they have a station under that king of kings. Let's talk about first the dangerous other kings. We're talking about the other kings. Let's talk about the dangerous ones first. You see, wisdom speaks of this ruler, this leader, in chapter 8, verses 15 through 16. It says, by me, by God, by me, kings reign and rulers decree justice. By me, princes rule and nobles, all the judges, people of authority of the earth. Everything is under subjection to the king of kings. But there's kings, there's rulers, there's princes, there's nobles, there's judges. And they all have wisdom that they are addressed with. We see these two things, that they are to be wise and that they are to love righteousness. Chapter 16, verse 13, righteous lips are the delight of kings, and they love him who speaks what is right. They're supposed to be lovers of truth. And so a king or a ruler or a leader is called to be wise and upright. Those are the two specific callings. And again, as we've already said, character matters, right? Character matters. It's not just that they be wise and upright in their actions, but that it comes from a wise and upright heart. Their character matters. Well, the problem is, is that as we look around, just specifically at rulers, there's not many rulers that have this kind of character, right? Even those that might do some of the things rightly don't have a character to back it up. So what are we to do with this? Because beyond just those rulers, whether it's kings, magistrates, governors, presidents, congressmen and women, whatever it might be, there are a lot of other positions of leadership out there, right? Rulership. Now, the thing that we usually give to this idea is what was called spheres of influence, or, or more theologically, we call it Kuyperian sphere sovereignty. Abraham Kuyper. Kyperian sphere sovereignty. You are a sovereign over different spheres. There's no one ruler over all the spheres save God. But what we're talking about here in this is that you have fathers over families. You have pastors, elders over church. You have governors over state. Those are different spheres. And each one has different sovereignty. The governor has no sovereignty over the church of God. The pastor has no sovereignty over the state. The pastor has no sovereignty over the father, and specifically in ruling his family. Right? The father has no uh, authority, rulership over the church alone. Right? All of these different spheres interact, and you can be part of all of the spheres, and in some ways you overlap. You might be a leader in multiple spheres, or you might only be in the one. But all of these exist, and that's much more than just saying the president, right? The chief ruler. All of these different leadership components matter, and inside of each one of those, we need good character. And inside of each one of those, we need a character that is submissive to the king, 
right? If we have Father over all with Jesus as the exalted King of kings, the magistrate over civil matters, the elder and church over spiritual matters, and the Father over familial matters, then we see that each one has governance. Each one has power. And each one has responsibility. And what do you see that to be an echo of? The same way that God exercises His sovereignty. Under, in, and over. Under, in, and over. You have governance, over, power, involved in holding it up, and then responsibilities. You have to do stuff inside of it. And in each of these, character matters. So, we take now wisdom for leaders, whether it be kings and presidents, or whether it be those kings of their various domains, even down to your home. Let's talk about wisdom for those people, all of them. So what are some temptations and sins of leaders? Let's talk about sins of the leaders first. Because the Proverbs never assumes that the king can do no wrong, right? Far from it. He can sin in many ways. The first one, by listening to flattery. By listening to flattery. Proverbs 19.6 Many entreat the favor of the nobility, and every man is a friend to one who gives gifts. Many entreat the favor of the nobility. You want to get on the noble's good side. You want to get on the leader's good side. Every man is a friend to the one who gives good things because they want some Santa, right? When you're in a position of influence and power, no matter where in those spheres, people cluster around people with influence and power. It can be lobbyists in Congress, or it can just be the simple honey-dipped tongues in church. One of the sad things that I have as I've been unpacking my office and moving stuff is I have a graveyard of thank you cards. Uh, throughout my ministry, even back into youth ministry, I get nice cards, um, whether it be birthday or general ministry stuff, pastoral appreciation stuff in October, whatever it might be, they find their way to me. I'm thankful for those things. They're incredibly encouraging, but I call it a graveyard because I have a lot of cards from people that ended up not being what they thought they were or not doing what they said they were going to do and supporting us or our ministry, they're gone. Sometimes for good reasons, sometimes for bad reasons. But it's a grave of thank you cards. Now, that's not to say don't encourage your pastors, right? It's a spiritual gift of, of encouragement. Um, you can do that. But beware, be thinking about that. Is it true encouragement or am I flattering them? Am I really giving thought to it when I say, good sermon, pastor? My typical response when someone says, that was a really great sermon, Pastor, is not to say thanks, it's to say thanks, what was helpful. I, I don't want you to just give me a platitude, like, I appreciate that you think it was a good one. Um, I know that when you don't come say that, you think it was awful, and that's fine. <laughs> but I want to know why it was helpful, that it's beyond mere flattery. I'm not doing this because it's my job, I'm doing this because I love you, and I care about you, and I want to feed you good things. So what was helpful? Same thing at home. This meal was awesome, Dad. Awesome. What do you like about it? Do you like, do you like the cheese? Do you like the creaminess? Do you like the meat? Do you like the smokiness? It's never the pepper. So what is it, right? What do you like? Be careful that it's not flattery, that you don't perceive whether here or at home or in your jobs, that you're trying to seek favor from that leader that you generally are honoring them because we're told to honor them. And there's certainly a difference between honor and flattery. And so the sin for the leader is to listen to flattery, to get puffed up by all the good news and to lose sight of who he is and what he's there for. 
The next one, and similar to it, hopefully from a more malicious perspective than the first one might be, is number two, listening to lies. You can sin by listening to lies. Proverbs 29.12, if a ruler pays attention to lies, all his servants become wicked. That's scary. If a ruler pays attention to lies, all his servants become wicked. You say there's no denying that leaders have influence and power. There's no denying that. And it's so much so that it's a danger that so goes the way of the leader, so go the people. And so should the ruler pay attention to lies, then all his servants become wicked. In other words, if a leader listens to lies and over time his staff at work, your home, your church, will consist of people who are being paid to dig up lies so that their boss can listen to them. When a congressman listens to lies, his staff becomes corrupt. When pastors listen to lies, his flock becomes wicked. When fathers listen to lies, their families serve evil. It is dangerous to listen to lies. Lies, are, as we'll see, are to be fought with truth. And lies must be dismissed. Number three, a ruler, a leader, a father, a pastor, a governor can sin by lying himself, by being a liar himself. Excellent speech is not becoming to a fool, much less lying lips to a prince. Chapter 17, verse 7. See, when a leader lies, he's doing something that's unbecoming to his station. They're supposed to be bastions and upholders of truth. And so when a leader lies, they're doing something that is unbecoming to their station of who they are or their office. The fact that politicians have a reputation for pandering and lying and flip-flopping means that they don't have an appropriate sense of their station or their office and their calling. For that to be a known character trait shows that they don't take it seriously. Proverbs 12.22 says, Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who act faithfully are his delight. And so a ruler, a leader, can sin by being a liar. That one seems pretty easy anyways, just from the Ten Commandments. Number four, by self-indulgence. By self-indulgence. Chapter 25, verse 5 says, Do not give your strength to women, nor your ways to that which destroys kings. It is not for kings, O Lemuel. It is not for kings to drink wine nor for princes intoxicating drink, lest they drink and forget the law and pervert the justice of all the afflicted. You see, as they self-indulge, they focus on themselves more rather than their office and responsibility. As they self-indulge, they become drunk, whether it's by actual drink. The picture is, is showing that they forget the law. And when you forget the law, how are you to judge rightly? By what standard? The standard of the day? The standard of those around you? You're called to judge according to the law. And when you lose sight of the law, and for the kings of Israel, it was by not copying the law as they were required to do. It was by not keeping it in front of them. And then by what standard is their rule? By what standard is their kingly rule? Whatever it might be today. Personal character choices are not unrelated to how a man treats the people. A man who cheats on his wife will cheat on anything. A man who will betray that confidence is a man not to be entrusted with anything. We're going to speak more to this next week in particular as we look at, at fidelity. But speaking just to the character component, if they're willing to do something here, 
what in the world is to stop them from not doing it everywhere in their life? Be mindful of these character things. The self-indulgence lends itself to a leader who becomes self-satisfied and loses sight of those he is supposed to uh, protect. Right? He's going to pervert justice to the afflicted. The afflicted need protection. And he's going to neglect those that he is meant to serve. The next one, number five, is oppression of the poor. <coughs> Oppression of the poor. Chapter 28, verse 15. <clears throat> We're going to pair this with the next one, which is verse 16, so you can go there if you want. It says, like a roaring lion and a charging bear is a wicked ruler over poor people. Like a roaring lion and a charging bear is a wicked ruler over poor people. All right, this is just me on offensive line. Just charging over them, right? That's the kind of picture is this just neglect of everything, just wanton destruction as they pummel in after what they are chasing. And it just speaks of a, a wicked ruler in general. We don't know what he's pursuing. It could have been the self-indulgence. It could have been anything. He's just wicked. This is a character, a heart issue. So this kind of pummeling over them, just, just pursuing whatever he's after, it's just wickedness. It's just a heart issue. And so for the king or the magistrate, the poverty of the people doesn't keep this man from skimming enough from everyone to overload his capacity for pleasure. Uh, the quote, it says this, what happens when you take a dime from 300 million people and each one of them only had two dimes to begin with? Their grinding poverty will not prevent self-indulgence at the top at all. In fact, many ninth-rate nations are known for this. Well, it's just a dime from everybody. Well, they only have two in the first place. So that's that's bowling them over, that is pursuing your own ends, that's pursuing your own goods. It's not a wise and careful leader. Now, what does this oppression look like for our generals? Because most of us can't exact a tax on anyone, right? What does this kind of oppression of the poor look like in those other spheres? I'd say for the pastor or the father, this oppression is often expressed in a lack of true listening. A lack of true listening. Now, with that statement is a caution, a beware. Um, beware your definition of listening on both ends, right? So what you think true listening looks like and what you think it looks like to be truly listened to, right? There's, the communication has both sides here. How do I know when this person is really listening to me and how do I know when I'm really listening? Those two things matter when we approach those individual relationships. But the principle, which is what we're trying, this is what I mean, there's so much left unsaid. Uh, the principle that we're talking about with this leader is, do you have a general sense of truly listening to people? Because when we think about what it feels like to be truly listened to, it usually means that the other person came around to our, our perspective, to our, our view on the matter, right? But listen, you have this blessing, leader, in whatever capacity, whether it's boss, father, pastor, uh, congressman, city councilman, whatever it is, you have this blessing as a godly leader because one of the benefits of godly rule that we're going to see specifically at the end is the blessing of a leader's understanding, right? One of, the, one of the hallmarks of the godly leader is that he's a man of wisdom, a man of understanding. That's a blessing from God that when they have the character pieces in place and they do life in the, in the, in the outworking of that, 
It's a person who has understanding. And so, a godly leader can listen truly and understand rightly. Not any one particular side of you, but in a rightness sense, because that's what we're chasing, right? Righteousness. We're going after truth. We're going after a full uh, survey of the matter. Do we really understand what's going on? Because at the end of the day, if the person doesn't come around to our point of view, how easy is it to say, well, they just didn't listen. They're not really listening to me. They don't get it. They don't see it from my perspective. Maybe they do. Maybe they don't. But they see a lot of other perspectives as well. That's one of the blessings of being a leader. You know this with your kids. One comes to you, it seems right, until what? There's a proverb I'm quoting. You hear the other side of the story, right? The first one to give their account seems right until you hear the rest of the matter. One of the first things I learned in my freshman classes in college is that when someone comes to you with a problem, stick your hand in your pocket, grab a quarter, there's two sides of every story. One of the most pithy, practical pieces of pastoral wisdom I've heard in my life, right? The godly leader can survey these things and with understanding of the truth and righteousness see things appropriately so when one kid comes with his story you can take a moment and understand everything that's going on so a godly leader should be careful to hear the whole matter because by contrast number six covetousness covetousness in verse 16 a ruler who lacks understanding is what a great oppressor but he who hates covetousness Will prolong his days. See, covetousness in rulers is a great trouble. The one who avoids it is doing well. The one who does not, the one who, it says, lacks understanding, becomes a great oppressor. Of course, in these days of progressive and enlightened government, the covetousness that pillages the poor today just has to be rebranded in the name of compassion, right? That's the way that our political system works. They still pillage the poor, but instead of it, just calling what it is, oppression, we'll call it compassion. We're, we're, we're caring for them. We're trying to, to do it for them. I think it's interesting that when you look at this pair of verse 15 and 16, you have this brash, just pummeling in ruler. He doesn't listen, doesn't, doesn't, doesn't seek understanding as we see. He lacks understanding. Verse 16, and, and as such, is just this great oppressor barreling everyone out of the way. But the one who's righteous does what? Actually listens to the people. Doesn't covet. Doesn't want what's not his. And as such, he's rightly able to care for those whose stuff it actually is. A right ruler in our government should not take and take and take from the people, but want them to have their belongings, not covet them for himself. That they have their stuff so that they can live their life rightly. This type of ruler prolongs his days. People will want to keep that person there. It's interesting, if you have an ESV study Bible, I know a lot of you do, if you look at your study note for verse 15 and 16, and you take this pair together, it says this, a wicked ruler is pictured as a powerful, destructive, wild animal who feeds off of poor people rather than protecting and providing for them. Such a ruler is a cruel oppressor who lacks the wisdom obligated by his physician to hate unjust gain. I'm really thankful for that note and the idea of the cruelness. We're going to talk about cruelty here in a minute. That cruelty aspect is such a tip-off to ungodly leadership. That's such a hallmark of satanic, of evil, wicked rulers. 
is cruelty. We see that throughout the Old Testament and the way that the other nations treated the people of God and the way that they treated their own people. Absolutely cruel. This is an unjust, this is an, a wicked ruler. You see, it's the same covetousness that can make a pastor use his people just to grow a church, just to leverage all of the resources. People are resources. It's not just their money, it's their, it's their abilities. Just to, to grow a church or, or to grow his own brand or to attain a lifestyle. A father can use his children or his wife to serve himself for his own ends. When his actual responsibility, same even as, as the pastor in this case, is to protect them, is to provide for them, is to teach them, to serve them, right? This covetousness is a way that leaders can sin. So avoiding those sins, though, is not enough to establish the strength of a throne. It's one thing to not do those things, right? But what are we supposed to do? How is godly rule established and preserved? The Bible teaches that when the leader does what is righteous now, his throne is protected in the future. But the pragmatists, whether it's real politicians, whether it's pastors or whether it's fathers, whether it's bosses, whatever sphere you're in, the pragmatists always argue that the needs and demands of the moment require the compromise now, and we can always come back to a righteous standard later. Like, we'll fix it later. This is absolutely foolish in the wisdom of the Proverbs. The danger is that you have a person who lives by the moment and not with the future in mind. Let's talk about then the righteous other kings who will rule well now for a future that is preserved. Righteous other kings. Number one, the ruler must be a man who refrains from wickedness himself. Chapter 16, verse 12. It's an abomination for kings to commit wickedness. For a throne is established by righteousness. The king who commits wickedness is an abomination. The king who wants a throne to be established lives by righteousness. This is simply a recap of what we've already said above, but more is needed than just to stay away from wickedness. It's to what? Pursue righteousness. A throne is established by the presence of righteousness. A leader is required by God to be a righteous man. This looks like Love of the law. This is the, the biblical words of uprightness or integrity you see so often like in the Psalms. This is, again, as we've already said, a man of character. It's not just not doing the bad thing, but it's a man with substance, with character, who does the right thing, righteousness. This isn't foreign to us. This is why we know the, the, the list of the character requirements for pastors, for elders. They have to be self-controlled and sober-minded. People who are doing the right thing, not just simply avoiding wickedness or sin. Number two, the leader must be a merciful man. A merciful man. Chapter 20, verse 28. It says, Mercy and truth preserve the king, and by loving kindness, he upholds his throne. So our last song for today is loving kindness. Keep this in mind. We think about the rulership and kingship of Jesus and his loving kindness and how he uses that to uphold his throne. It's mercy and truth that preserve the king. 
And by loving kindness, he upholds his throne. And so we see an important part of the magistrate's duty, the ruler's duty, the leader's duty, is the administration of justice and judgment. But the Bible also teaches that mercy triumphs over judgment. When a magistrate does not levy the maximum penalty, and he does this in wisdom, this preserves the king. It's not ethical compromise to show mercy. Right? Because as a Christian who knows the whole story, doing the right thing today because we know the future, we know that on the last day in the future, the whole book will be thrown at the unrepentant evildoer. Right? That is the day of judgment. They will get their just desserts. As we see in, in Revelation 22, he's coming and he is bringing his recompense with him. That day is coming. We know that. So, not throwing the whole book at a man in the meantime does not mean compromise. If he remains that way, it's coming. It's coming. It is prudent to be merciful as we have been shown mercy. Right? Psalm 51.1, this is David's response after Nathan calls him out uh, concerning Bathsheba and Uriah. He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. It's your adultery and murder. We've been shown mercy. We should show mercy, right? Because a lack of mercy leads to cruelty. A lack of mercy leads to cruelty. Cruelty should be our tip to poor leadership. This belies compromising on their throne of authority. The person who is cruel, the leader who is cruel, the father who is cruel, shows a compromising of their throne of authority. Because notice that while mercy does reign, it's the hand of truth. Right? It's the hand of truth that does this. Mercy and truth preserve the king. And by loving kindness, he upholds his throne. Mercy does reign, but it's by the hand of truth. And that's what helps us with the wisdom component. And so if mercy is missing, then truth is probably what? Missing as well. They don't understand the truth. Now, the other thing I want you to see in this mercy thing is that notice that the response escalates as the evil escalates. Right? Mercy reigns, with truth and loving kindness. But as we look at the next couple, I want you to see how the response escalates in view of the evil as it escalates. Number three, the ruler must be a man who hates evil and judges it. The leader must be a merciful man. The ruler must be a man who hates evil and judges it. This comes from chapter 20, verse 8. A king who sits on the throne of judgment scatters all evil with his eyes. I love that verse. That is, is an amazing verse, right? While mercy is often appropriate, it's not the universal law. When consequences don't fall on the wicked, their hearts are filled up with mischief. Right? So the righteous leader will literally scatter evil with his eyes. So this is peering into the world and seeing evil scatter like cockroaches in front of their sight. This is the dab look, Right? This is the dad look. All dads have this look. Your dad had this look. 
from wherever they are in any circumstances, if they're looking at you from across the way, if you see me with a funny face while I'm playing bass, look at my kids. Like, I'm dad looking. That's what I'm trying to do, okay? That's usually why I miss notes. The dad look. We can peer into the world and we can just, with that view, dispense of all evil, right? It scatters. Dad should have it. Pastor should have it. Magistrate should have it. It's an appropriate severity, right? A godly and righteous gravitas. To have this kind of character behind a leader that they can look into the life of someone and evil scatters and drives it out. This is the type of leader that we, that we need. He, he hates evil and he judges it. He does something about it. Mercy rules. We don't throw the whole book, but we judge rightly. And we call out what it is. John Wayne says in one of his movies, I forgot, says this, I don't know much about the law, ain't had much book learning, but the good Lord gave me a nose for smelling a horse thief a mile off. And what you need in these parts is a marshal that's better at smelling than spelling. I think that is the right kind of leader that we need. That's the father, pastor, boss that I want, right? One that has a good sense of smell. And they must judge it. They must do something about it. There can be no accommodating evil. Call it what it is with courage and handle it righteously. A father, pastor, leader who abides evil hates his people. That's the danger. If it's not dealt with, it's allowed to grow. And if you listen to lies, as we saw earlier, what happens to the people? They're caught up in the wickedness. You must handle these things in your families, in your workplaces, in your churches. Number four, you must be intolerant of wicked counselors. Chapter 25, 4 through 5. Take away the dross from silver, and it will go to the silversmith for jewelry. Take away the wicked from before the king, and his throne will be established in righteousness. When you purify silver, gold, you skim the, the junk off the top, the impurities, and then it's ready to go and be made into jewelry, right? It's been purified. When you take the wicked, the junk away from before the king, and his throne is established, it's ready in righteousness. This means that the president, in our case, must keep the cabinet clean of all corruption. Right? Wicked counselors might be shrewd, just as Joab is for David, but that doesn't mean that you're going to get the right result. It doesn't still end well for him, right? Might have abilities, skills, be good at what he does, but wicked counselors lead where? Wickedness. We elders have typically spoken of this in our, I guess, more office time. We haven't done it from a pulpit a whole lot, but getting the snake out of the garden. That's the picture that we usually use. Getting the snake out of the garden. If we are to tend our flock, if we are to tend our Eden, and we are to get the snake out of the garden. The same picture is true of the pruning that you see from Jesus in John 15, talking about the true vine. The picture of Genesis is that the head of the serpent will be crushed. The picture of John 15 is that it will be cut off and burned. You see the escalation? Mercy rules, right? But as we escalate evil, we see a more pertinent response to the moment. Number five, a leader must judge the poor faithfully. Chapter 29, verse 14. The leader must judge the poor faithfully. The king who judges the poor with truth, his throne will be established forever. 
Have you heard that establishment word? It's that legacy that we've talked about, even from the home. It's the idea that this is a kingdom that is everlasting. Now, specifically in Proverbs, we're most pertinently speaking to the throne of David, Solomon, right? But these truths for all over is the concern that kings want their legacy, their rulership, their kingdom to go on in perpetuity, whether that's in the family or just to exist. This idea of it being established matters to the ruler. I want my family to be established. I want this church to be established. I want my country to be established. I certainly want the kingdom of heaven to come, right? (coughs) Now, when we see this establishment component, we understand that how does that come? By judging the poor with truth. How does he interact and deal with the most vulnerable? Well, as we learn elsewhere, he can't show partiality in any direction to the rich, right? James talks about that. To the flatterer that we talked about earlier, you don't want to show partiality to those that are nice to you. You treat them justly. But we also don't want to show partiality to the poor. We treat them justly. The magistrate who defends the poor is exercising his authority the way God wants it exercised. But they cannot afford any other defenders. As we saw in bits and pieces last week in the background of the sluggard is this person who, who's pursuing well. But the danger is that those who have wealth often do so by wickedness at the expense of the poor. And so it's not judging the it's not, not judging the poor for their sin, it's defending them as they fight oppression. Whether that's in the country, whether that's in the home. You see that truth prevails and guides these things. The righteous leader will defend the least of these, the most vulnerable. Whether it be your kids from the other spouse, whether it be the kids from yourself, whether it be at your job, whether it be here, or whether it be out in the world, the righteous person will defend the least of these. So, that's what they're to pursue. And I guess the natural question would be, if this is what wisdom is to be for all of life, then where does it go? How does it end up? If this is what I'm supposed to do day after day after day, why? (laughs) So that it will go well is a a good answer, right? So that you'll be successful seems to be the indication from the Proverbs. But what does God do for this leader inside his people, his place, his rule, right? Inside his kingdom, what does this person do? If he's king over all these other kings, dangerous and good godly ones, What happens to the ones who are good and godly? As we've seen, when a prince or a ruler or a king or a leader honors God in his personal and public, not just what he does, but who he is, person, the throne is established by God. Chapter 14, verse 28, we see that God's blessing uh, is described this way. In a multitude of people is a king's honor, but in a lack of people is the downfall of a prince. And as we mentioned earlier, this understanding that a ruler, a leader has comes from chapter 25, verses 2 through 3. Because God gives honor and glory and the dignity of the king's ability and his office. He's the one that appoints these kings. He says this, it is the glory of God to conceal a matter, but the glory of kings is to search out a matter, to discover, to understand. As the heavens for height and the earth for depth, so the heart of kings is unsearchable. There's a glory and dignity to those leaders and rulers who do so well 
in the kingdom of God. As you heard Pastor Matt say a few weeks ago, glory in the kingdom of God is not a zero-sum game. He has all the glory, and he has plenty to share and give out. And so for the godly father, there is glory for you in that, in that station, in that office. For the godly leader in the church, whether it's as a deacon, an elder, or as a refcom leader, there's glory for you in leading people in this way. Whether it's at your jobs, whether it's in the world, we see that this is the case. Because we know that it wouldn't be the first time, right? If this is the nature of God to give glory and honor to those who do so well for his namesake, we see it patterned most after Christ. How did he treat Christ? How did he do it to Christ? Christ was a godly, righteous person, right? I mean, out of all of us, I would say that. He's the righteous one. He's the king of kings. And so how did God bless him? We see this in Ephesians 1, 17-23. Paul's praying that we would know that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what it is, the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So for the righteous king, he made him king of kings. He put all things under his feet as a footstool. He gives to us an inheritance in him. And he seats him next to him on his right side. And us then being filled by him and joined with him. It's a pretty good place to be if we're worried about our kingdom being established. If we're worried about our rulership extending into eternity. We've been joined to the king of kings as other kings who rule rightly. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your rulership. We thank, we thank you for your, for your story, Father, for what you are doing in this world. Father, we thank you for how you've called, to, called us to be a part of it. Father, we are not just to, to mind uh, our own business in the sense, uh, but Father, we're active in this world because you're active. Father, we preserve because you preserve. We govern because you govern. Father, you give us things to do. Father, you call us to be righteous rulers in our various ways. But I pray that in light of last week and talking of the sluggard, that this week you help us see the opportunities that we have to rule well. Father, that you show us that we don't just have work to do, but we have work to do in places because we're part of the kingdom. We're your people. We're in your place, your kingdom. We want to see your will done on earth as it is in heaven. Father, help us see that that's the task to be about. Father, we thank you for what you have done. We thank you for how we know it will end. Let us live rightly today because we know what will come. Let us live according to your standard today because we want to see righteousness upheld. We want to see righteousness and truth established. Father, thank you for calling us to this. Thank you for Christ to be the one to fill us in this. Father, let us get rid of everything that is evil around us, whether it's our own words or whether it's those around us. 
Father, let us bring truth to bear on all those things, to sort out truly what is good and what is evil. Father, we love you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.